Well, I invite you to turn with me in, in your Bibles to Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. We're in the middle of an exposition by the writer of Hebrews of Psalm 95. And we'll see that more clearly in a moment. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to him to whom we must give account. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word to us. Listen to these words. Agitation, busyness, distress, disturbance, turbulence, striving, chaos, restlessness. Well, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? Now hear these words, calm, peace, serenity, tranquility, rest. Those words sound great, don't they? And we all long for these words, these latter words, and not the first group of words. We all want peace and tranquility and serenity and rest. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is talking about today, and we're going to be thinking about rest today, true rest, true Sabbath rest. And there are three things that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, first and foremost, we see here a promise of Sabbath rest. Then secondly, there's a warning about unbelief. And then a final, finally, a charge to devotion. Well, first we see here the writer is telling us that there is a promise of Sabbath rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews is continuing his comments on Psalm 95, the latter half of it, verses 7 through 11, that says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. 
For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who will go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Of course, he's talking about the first generation of Israelites who left Egypt under Moses. They were not allowed to enter the promised land because of unbelief, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who went out to spy on the Holy Land, and they were all for going and obeying the Lord and taking the land. But the other ten spies said, no, they're The land is great, but it's filled with giants and people more powerful than us. And the Lord has just brought us out here to kill us and and our children. And we need to go back to Egypt. See, they could have begun entering the promised land about two years into the Exodus. But because they were a people who were continuously going astray in their hearts and did not know the Lord's ways, Therefore, God did not allow them to enter, as Psalm 95 states. And they died wandering in the desert 40 years. Now, the second generation was allowed to enter under Joshua's leadership. The book of Joshua records the conquest of the promised land. And when you get towards the end of the book of Joshua, it says this, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That first generation did not believe that the Lord would do what he said. The second generation faithfully went into the land as God had commanded, and they believed the promises, and they enjoyed rest from their enemies. And the writer of Hebrews is referring to this, and he's, uh, he's referring to Psalm 95, of course, but Psalm 95 is referring to this, these events. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here in chapter 4 is this. Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years after Joshua entered the Promised Land and gave rest to the Israelites from all their enemies. Hundreds of years after. Psalm 95 was also written within the promised land. It was written by David. He was in Jerusalem. But David in Psalm 95 is warning the people of his day not to be like that first generation who died in the desert. David says, today do not harden your hearts. Do not be like those people who failed to enter The rest the Lord provided through Joshua. See, he's implying that there is a rest yet to be had, even though they were there in the promised land, riding from Jerusalem. Don't harden your hearts, he says. Don't be like those people. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 4. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there is continuing to be a promise of rest. That's why he says in verse 1, the promise of entering his rest still stands. So verse 9 is really where the, the conclusion of it is. You know, the writer of the Psalms, David, is reminding the people of his day 
that they can fail to enter the rest, that there is a rest to be had. The writer of Hebrews is pointing back to Psalm 95 and saying, there's still a rest to be had. And we read the scriptures today, and it says the same thing to us. There is a rest. Look at verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's taking us back to Genesis 2, back further than Psalm 95, back further than the book of Joshua, back further than the Exodus, all the way to creation where it says on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The writer of Hebrews is reminding us that God has rested from his works. When he finished creation, it was done. And there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is rest to be had in the Lord, in God. Now verse 9 really says that there is a Sabbath for the people of God. The word rest is not next to Sabbath in verse 9. There is a Sabbath for the people of God. The translators, I think, did well to include the word rest because they want to connect it, this term Sabbath, with the term rest that's used in the rest of the Scriptures. It's a different word. The word rest is a different word than Sabbath in this passage. But when he uses the term Sabbath, he's making an important point because Sabbath is an important term. The term Sabbath is more than just resting physically. It has the element of worship to it as well. It's worship and rest. Restlessness is that desire to be, we have a desire to be filled and fulfilled in our lives and and we're restless. We, We can't find what we're looking for. That's restlessness. People look for that fulfillment in our hearts in so many different ways in our days. They look for it in relationships or in work and wealth or status, beauty, sports, material possessions, and their children. And the list goes on and on of all the things which we try to fill our lives so that we can feel fulfilled. But what we're missing if we do that is that the truth of the matter is that when a person is in a right relationship with God, He ceases to search for fulfillment because the search is over. He's found fulfillment. When a person is in right relationship to God, when he is devoted to God, then he finds what he or she was created for. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's purpose is to know God and to have a relationship with Him. St. Augustine writes in his Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they 
find their rest in you. C.S. Lewis also reiterated this point in the same way, says the same thing. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. See, if we have a right relationship with God, we can enjoy rest in our souls, a sense of fulfillment. We can enjoy a Sabbath rest, not just relaxing, but a Sabbath rest. We are devoted to the Lord, and in that relationship, we find peace and tranquility and joy. We can enjoy Sabbath rest in God now, but we will only know Sabbath rest in its perfection when we die or the Lord returns. The Bible describes the death of believers in this way in Revelation 14. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And what does it mean to go to the Lord and rest from your labors? It means you're in his presence that you are there in, in his presence and you can worship him and have communion with him for eternity. It's what you were created for. He's the person you're looking for. He's the, the, the void in your life that, or that's what the, fills the void in your life. And the Sabbath command that we have in the Ten Commandments points us to that rest in the Lord. You remember the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. He consecrated it. He set it apart. And we set apart this day, one day in seven, for worship and rest, to have more time to enjoy God and to worship Him, to cease from our daily grind and our jobs, our work, whatever it might be, school, and rest in Him. So if we spend this day doing whatever and not thinking about the Lord, we're wasting it. We're, we're, we're not treating it like it's supposed to be treated. And we're not enjoying God. You'll notice in Psalm 95, if you look at it, 7 through 11, which he's expounding on here in Hebrews 4, 3 and 4, the, the latter half is a warning, but the first half is a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Then, he says, today do not harden your hearts. See, there's a, there's a connection there. He's saying to get this rest, you have to be in relationship with the Lord. It's in worship that we find rest. If we harden our hearts and, and ignore the call to come and worship the Lord, then we're not going to find that rest. We're just living in unbelief. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. Sunday, or, this, or the Sabbath, 
is the same day as the day of the Lord's resurrection in the New Testament. It is the day of rest, the day of victory, of dominion, of completion, of transfiguration, the day of worship for us, the day of hope, of looking forward to the day of final rest with God, to the rest that belongs to the people of God. All the days of the week have really been created just for the sake of this day. You shall keep the holiday holy and not sleep it away. God's work has been created. We have been created for the final peace, for the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the day of the final resurrection and the rest of the Creator with the creatures the Creator has made, that they may rest from their labor and their works follow them. And where can we find this rest, this Sabbath rest? It can only be found in Christ. As we read before, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why he's pointing us to Christ. We're continuing on from chapter 3 where he says, Consider Christ. Look at Christ. And that's what he's doing in the book. He's pointing us to Jesus and the rest that he gives us here in chapter 4. Well, there is this rest, this peace, this fulfillment in our souls that we can find in the Lord. So that's why, in the second, second point, he gives us a warning about unbelief. Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And then verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, that phrase, they failed to enter because of disobedience. He's warning us against unbelief, lack of faith, and disobedience that is an exhibition of unbelief. If we look back at the Exodus and the reason that the first generation of Israelites were not allowed to go into the promised land, it was really came down to the, 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 the build-up to entering the promised land. They sent the spies over, the 12 spies. Ten came back with a bad report. And it says there in Numbers 14, all the congregation in response to their bad report, ignoring Joshua and Caleb's good report, all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is the culmination of all that they had done. Psalm 95 talks about the waters of Meribah and Massah. That's where Moses struck the rock. And uh, the people were grumbling and they says, is the Lord with us or not? We don't believe the Lord's here with us. He's just left us out here to die. And they repeatedly said that and grumbled against the Lord about the food and the water and so forth. And Moses, Psalm 78 says that they were a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. 
Well, the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were exhibiting the same kind of rebellion, of stubbornness, of lack of steadfastness. I think that's probably the the hallmark of what you see here with the Hebrews and why he's so urgently warning them because they were about to give up. They were, in essence, going back to Egypt. They were going back to their old lives. They were leaving Christ and and going on an easier path because it was hard in those days to be a Christian. They faced persecution. They faced tribulation. And they were ready to give up. They didn't think it was worth it. And they would rather be enslaved to the old ways like the first generation on the Exodus to go back to Egypt where they were miserable. That's what they were doing. And the writer of Hebrews is warning them. What about you and me? Are you showing signs of unbelief that leads to disobedience in a hard heart? How are you going back to Egypt? You're going back to the old ways. The Lord has called you from the world. Are you going back to the world? Are you following the ways of the world that are in conflict with the ways of God? Back to bondage and sin? Jesus came and died to forget, to, so that we might be forgiven our sins and freed from bondage to sin. So when we are disobedient and we turn from the Lord... We're going back to slavery like the, Egypt, like the Israelites were trying to do, to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. When we go back to our old sinful ways, we're going back to slavery to sin. We're acting like slaves. When the Lord, through his, his life, death, and resurrection, has freed us from slavery and adopted us into his family, so we're not slaves, we're sons and daughters, of course. We can go back to Egypt, back to bondage and sin. We must be careful and show the reality of our profession and our confession and live it out persistently to keep coming to Christ when we're heavy laden every day so we can find rest for our souls. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, the practical implication is clear. It is not the hearing of the gospel by itself that brings salvation, but it's appropriation by faith, and if a genuine faith, it will be a persistent faith. It's not just hearing about these things that bring salvation. You have to appropriate it by faith, and if that faith is a genuine faith, it will be a persistent faith. It will not be the seed sown in the, in the rocky place or, or amongst the, the weeds that gets choked out or, or fades when the difficulties come. No, it will sink down into Christ and will produce a great crop. That's why he says at the end of this section that we just read, 12 and 13, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he's... He's underlining the fact that he's giving this warning that is coming from Psalm 95. And he says, that's God's word. And if, and if it's convicting you, it's God's word that's doing it. And God is seeing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Are we trusting in Christ? Do our hearts belong to him? Are we persistent in our faith? If not, then we must come to him. As we are weary and heavy laden, and whatever we're trying to do to make ourselves fulfilled, let it go and come to Christ. We'll find rest for our souls there. So he gives us finally, after a warning about unbelief, a charge to devotion. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's pressing us to uh, a persistent faith in Jesus, a daily faith in Jesus. Now that word translated strive, strive to enter that rest, it means to do something with intense effort and motivation. So it's not just telling you to work harder. There, there's a, a sense of motivation behind that. There's a, you can translate the word uh, to be eager to enter that rest or to be zealous to enter that rest or to be devoted to enter that rest. It's not just the action of striving but it's, it's having your heart desire it to really want to be there in the end, to be with the Lord forever, to find that your greatest good, to long for it. And, and when you see that as the object of your hope, that gives you zeal for the striving, for, for the effort that it takes, for continuing on when the going gets tough. So he's giving us this charge to make sure we enter that rest. There is a rest to be had in the now, but ultimately with the Lord in perfection. One commentator, Bob Utley, writes this, and I think this is a good summation. Believers will one day cease their diligence, but verse 11 clearly asserts that while physical life remains... Believers must continue in faith, repentance, obedience, and perseverance. Verse 11 is a strong warning. Salvation is absolutely free in the finished work of Christ. It is a gift of grace from the Father and the convicting work of the Spirit. However, the sovereign triune God has chosen to deal with humanity in a covenant relationship. Mankind must respond and continue to respond. Salvation is not simply a ticket to heaven nor a fire insurance policy, but a day-by-day faith relationship with God which issues in progressive Christ-likeness. The covenant has benefits and obligations. Do you have a day-by-day faith relationship with God which is issuing in progressive Christ-likeness? It's the reason you were created. And if you don't come to Jesus, your heart will continue to be restless. So come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest for your souls. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that everyone here would know the rest that, that is in you, that is in Christ. Rest for the soul. Lord, we often strive thinking we have to earn your favor and or we, maybe we're mistakenly thinking that our salvation is up to us but Lord we pray that we would rest in your grace and in the finished work of 
our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would find uh, the joy of the Lord. Lord, sometimes our love does grow cold. We lose our zeal. We pray, as we sang earlier, that the fire of God would come down and fill our souls, that you would tear away the idols that we long for and that we run to, and that we would be devoted only to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would draw any who are lost today to yourself by your Holy Spirit. Help those of us who are struggling along the journey to have our legs and arms strengthened for the, for the, for the traveling and for the fight. We pray, Lord, that we would put on the full armor of God and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to overcome and to endure to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.